Good morning. If you take your Bible, turn to the book of Romans chapter 13. We made it. We'll be in this for probably two years, but just kidding. That's a joke. It's a Marty joke. Well, maybe not. Romans 13. I had every intention of looking at the first seven verses. Uh, we're not going to move past verse two. So uh, verse two, two verses. Yeah. Uh, this, this is Paul's uh, discussion about a believer's responsibility to the government. And I would anticipate, in light of where we live and what many of you do for a living, this is kind of an important topic, wouldn't you say? Two people agree with me. Okay. All right. We'll pray for the others. Romans chapter 13. Let's pray this morning. Father, we uh, adore you. Uh, you are uh, the one who created all things by the word of your mouth, and we are sent in awe at your great power. Uh, and it exists, as we just sang, in a Trinitarian concept beyond uh, comprehension. But that's what we would expect in uh, your being that would be beyond our comprehension to understand the exact essence of how you are. We thank you, Son, for leaving the glory of heaven uh, and becoming our Savior. And we thank you, Spirit, uh, for empowering the ministry of the, of the Savior as he walked the planet. And uh, we thank you for the fact that you dwell with us today as our comforter, as John says in John 14 and 16, to comfort us in dark days and to give us hope and joy uh, in great days. And we just submit ourselves to you today and ask that uh, if we walk with you and know you as Savior, that this would all be about life change today, especially as we think about a believer's responsibility to uh, governmental authority structures. And we pray for those who don't know you, that wrestle with you, don't really understand you, don't understand the mission of Christ. Might this be a day of great illumination where you show them your power and the greatness of the gospel. Amen. Romans uh, chapter 13 uh, is a great chapter. Uh, it's, a very, it's a difficult chapter uh, because it challenges your thinking. Uh, and I constantly, as a pastor, study the culture because uh, part of my job as a, as a pastor uh, is, it's multifold, but part of it is to be an apologist, to teach you how to defend the faith, and then how to live within a godless culture in a, in a powerful way, because we are called to be light and salt uh, to said culture. So how do we do that? Uh, so I study culture uh, in a variety of ways. One of the things I do is I, r I constantly read books on the culture, uh, and I've read, I don't, over the last 32 years of pastoring, I've read thousands of pages, literally. Um, I just finished a book. Uh, I like the shorter books because you feel rewarded when you finish them quickly. <laughs> I've read some really long ones that took me like, feel like a lifetime to finish them. But uh, I just read a, a short book. And this is a, a good primer if you want to get an idea of where the culture is going and how we got where we are, uh, which is uh, heading off of a moral cliff uh, in turbulent times. Uh, David Horowitz has a book called Dark Agenda, The War to Destroy Christian America. Uh, it's a strategic book, uh, and especially good for younger people to read and understand what's happened. And it's it happened in my lifetime. Uh, as I see my life throughout the entire book as he talks about uh, humanistic, uh, atheistic, godless strategy to remove Judeo-Christianity from every vestige of our country. And it has not been a good thing, as we can all see. And so I submit that book to you to read. It's probably about 140 pages. That's a morning read, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, what, is, what is the basic premise of the book? Well, he shows how uh, atheistic, humanistic uh, structures within our country uh, that have been there for many, many years, uh, back uh, at the beginning of the, the 1960s, late 1950s, uh, understood that they did, could not subvert the will of the people, which were either Judeo-Christian in allegiance or Judeo-Christian in mindset. Um, they could not subvert the will of the people, and so they basically used the Supreme Court decisions to espouse their false positions to take control of many sectors of our country. That's what they've done. 
Uh, and what he does is he starts where the, where the battle began. And I remember where the battle began when I was a, a little boy. Uh, prior to 1962, uh, when I was in school as a little boy, uh, you started school uh, with the teacher asking you to stand and say, Pledge of Allegiance. And so we all turned to the flag. Everybody put your hand on your heart, and you know the drill, right? You do, okay. A couple of you are following me, so... And then, 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 uh, then typically the teacher uh, in class would then stop and pray for the class. I never even thought anything about it as a little kid. That's just what we said. The Pledge of Allegiance, the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And then we all knew that we stood there while the, the, the teacher, whoever she was, sometimes they'd read scripture. Oh, you know, forbid the thought. Uh, she read the scripture and then she'd pray for her class. Shocking. And no one ever even thought about it. Well, I was on the playground one day when I was a little kid. Uh, and little kids do have political discussions on the playground. Uh, we did. Maybe we were a li strange little baby boomers, but we did. Uh, because one of my friends told me, hey, we're not going to pray in class anymore. You know, we're playing kickball, kicking the ball around. I'm like, you know, why not? Well, because there was a court case. The Supreme Court ruled that we can't do that anymore. Who's the Supreme Court? You know, I'm kind of learning back then what was going on. What happened? Uh, what year was it? 1962. What was the court case? Uh, Engel versus Vitale. Uh, the ACLU uh, got a hold of that situation uh, and uh, turned the First Amendment and the uh, Establishment Clause on its head. And so the Establishment Clause, which has now been woven into our culture, nobody even thinks anything about it anymore, thinks it was part of the Constitution. It was not. Uh, establishment Clause, a di division of church and state, was really a letter by uh, Thomas Jefferson written to the Danbury uh, Baptist Association in Connecticut. Uh, which was really his uh, statement to them in uh, January the 1st, 1802, that the state would not intrude upon the rights of the church. Uh, the ACL took, took that and flipped it upside down and made that total division between the two. And so in my lifetime, I've watched over the years uh, as they've driven Christianity out of the culture. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, I needed somebody praying for me in class. When you're taking a math test, English test, grammar test, not realizing this would be real important when I'm older. Uh, but they drove that out of the class. And I remember when, as a youth pastor when they told me I couldn't play at a, pray at a high school uh, graduation service anymore. That's, that's verboten. Well, why? Well, you, division of church and state, etc. Even when I was a sheriff chaplain for 1,300 officers before I came here, it was a dance I had to do because it's very difficult. I could sense the politics of me being there. It's very interesting. Because uh, you, you were seen as the problem, them, not the solution. So no longer can the teacher pray in class anymore for her students because of that court case. Uh, the will of some uh, atheistic humanist overrode the will of the people. Uh, and now we can't do that thing. But what can teachers do today? Well, they can pass out a questionnaire for your children uh, in our county uh, to answer questions that are adults shouldn't even be answering. We have gone from, in my estimation, uh, prayer over here and purity over here to perversion in my lifetime. Shocking. What is, a, what is a Christian's responsibility in that kind of situation? As the culture degenerates, and it is, uh, what, what's, what's our responsibility as, as citizens? We're citizens of two kingdoms. You realize this, right? First and foremost, I am a, I'm a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, and I happen to be born in the United States, so I'm a citizen here. What's my responsibility to the kingdom here? Um, well, when you think about the Apostle Paul, uh, he lived uh, in the Roman Empire, and they had a really nice, friendly king at the time, <laughs> Caesar Nero. Now, if you want to talk about a, about a, about a man you could hate, that you, you could not like quickly, it'd be Nero. Uh, this would be the individual that will eventually behead Paul. 
I mean, and so this is the man who, uh, you know, uh, his Senate accused him of burning Rome to the ground, who put Christians on stakes, covered them in tar, lit them up at night to light the city. This is an evil man. It's an evil man. And the things that Paul's going to say are within the confines of the Neronian Empire. So when you hear what he's going to say here, keep in mind the political uh, uh, milieu of the day, the, the situation. Because what he's going to say is eyebrow raising, jaw dropping. It's going to change your worldview as a Christian. And I would challenge you, you should be thinking of his words here and asking yourself one question. Am I doing the things that Paul says here as a citizen of this country? Let's look at what he has to say. The question is very simple. What does a model Christian citizen look like? Why is he talking about that? Well, let's go back to the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. It's time for a review. You ready? Okay. So the first eight chapters were about one thing. How does a sinner get right with God? Well, they come to Christ and they embrace him by faith. And in his courtroom in the heavenlies, he brings the gavel down and says, you are now, you, you are now not guilty. I give you my righteousness. You didn't have any. I forgive you. Justification by faith. Uh, is that supposed to impact your personal character and the way that you live? Absolutely. That's what chapter 12 was about. Remember? We spent half our lifetime in chapter 12. Remember that's verses 1 and 2 where he said, you, you know, don't be, you know, conformed to this world. You live your body as a sacrifice to God. Don't be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't, you know, etc. He's giving you in, in these commands. And then he tells you in verses 9 and following exactly how you live a non-conformed, transformed life. And that's where we went through all those commands. Do you think Paul's done with you? No. No, he says, uh, your Christianity should impact you as a, as a citizen of a country. Well, in what way? Well, this is what we want to study. Uh, we'll cover two concepts today. I know sermons usually have three, three points. That's the anointed thing from seminary. Don't call Dallas Seminary. Tell them I deviated. I don't believe it. Two points. They won't care, okay? And I already got my diploma, so it doesn't matter. So, uh, <laughs> What does a model Christian citizen look like? Two things. Number one, he, the model Christian citizen, actually believes that the government is divinely appointed. Now stop and think about this. Two preparatory thoughts before we dive into this. Number one, the passage does not speak about any one form of government. So the type of government that we live in now is classified in a variety of ways, but it's a constitutional form of government, basically, correct? I have 99% of the people want to argue the point. It's okay. Uh, but what, federalist, whatever, but I'm thinking constitutional. So is that the only form? No. Just go to Wikipedia, uh, Fountain of all wisdom and knowledge, go there, type in how many different forms of government are there, and you're going to find, eh, there's over 20. So Paul's not talking about one in particular. He's just talking about government authority in general. He's not talking about uh, feudalism. He's not, he's not talking about uh, colonialism, capitalism, bureaucracy, etc. Uh, he's just talking about government form in general. Number two, the passage does not tell you what to do if said government goes off the rails. He's not talking about that. We will talk about that because I know you're going to want to know what we should do. I know the church at this point after 11 years. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, but these are the two things to keep in mind. He's not writing about that. He's just saying as a citizen who's justified by faith in Jesus, how should you live as a kingdom member of heaven in this earthly empire that's got its issues? Two things. What did he say? Number one, he believes that the government in, that he's in is divinely appointed. Uh, how do I know that? What did he say? Every person is to be in subjection when they feel like it. No, no, all the time to the governing authorities. Let's just stop right there. Uh, the, every person in Greek is emphatic. 
I mean, it's like when you read it in Greek and you go from chapter 12, the last verse, to the first verse of chapter 13, this is like a speed bump because the word every is put, flip, uh, put first in the sentence. You need to stop and think about this. He says every person. You don't have to have a PhD in hermeneutical Bible study skills to understand what every person means. It means every person. Uh, does it apply just to believers? No? No. It applies to non-Christians too. Because if you study the concept of moral law, uh, and if you want to really read a really good book about the presence of moral law that God has built into the fabric of our being, that we just know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, uh, read uh, Jay Budzuski's book, What We Can't Not Know. Awesome read. I won't say it's easy, but it's a great read about the presence of moral law from a great philosopher at the University of Austin in Texas. Um, he says everybody should be in, uh, under, under the authorities. Uh, rulership. So what I used to do when I raised my children, when they had little infractions as children, that's when you step in as a parent because you want to save them from prison one day, right? So my mother always told me, I'm saving you from a life of crime. Uh-huh. I'm just going to be Al Capone or something. I mean, it's unbelievable. So it kind of works like this. So if the, ch the child, some kind of sinful infraction, you know, hit your sister, knock down whatever she was building or whatever. Um, if you, if you uh, will disrespect a parent and disobey them, you're going to disrespect all authorities, the police officer, on down the line to, you know, whoever. You will do, you have to start here. So what's wrong with our culture? Discipline in the home, I'd say. Is that, this is a whole other sermon series, which is job security for me for the future. So <laughs> we'll come back to that maybe someday. But the, the, the more the house is run like God would design the house, then there's fear in the children, a respect for authority. One of my friends in high school, driving a VW Bugs, pulled over when we were in high school. He's on the football team. His name's Chuck. Um, and the police officer walks over to the car, flips open his book to write him up a ticket, and Chuck says this, hey, man, I'll have uh, two eggs over easy with a side of ham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how'd that go for you? It was bad. The full effect of the law. So was he subvert, subservient to the officer? No, no. And so he had, Chuck had issues. Uh, and, and a lot of our culture has issues like Chuck. So Paul says everybody should be in subjection to the authority. So it's a police officer and you see the lights on behind you, what should you do? Speed up, let him pass me, hit the brakes. What? You need to pull over. I've actually had to have them pull on the, the loudspeaker and tell you, buddy, <laughs> hey, you in the car, could you pull over? I've had him do that before. Really get your attention. It's like God. And you pull over. Um, I was going 116 miles an hour when he did that to me. <laughs> As an airplane was following my car, I was in college. I was on the edge. Um, yeah, that's when planes first came out, when no one thought they were real. That was me. I took my girlfriend's car, I opened it up in the mountains outside of San Diego. I was flying. And that's when the plane crossed the freeway. And then I thought, that was an awful large bird. And then here came the local CHP officer, airborne, trying to catch me, drawing sparks on his car, turns on the loudspeaker, hey you, that's another story. But anyway, I understand the importance of obeying authority because if you don't obey authority, what happens to said culture? Chaos. Chaos. So if you're in the military, how many are in the military? Probably the whole church. See, they just barely put their hands up. Be proud. Nobody's putting their hand up. Do it again. You're in the military, okay? How many of you, are, you're retired. You're not, okay. Weren't you Air Force? Yeah, okay. So, uh, so if you're a colonel, who's over you? General, who's over him? The two-star, the three-star, the four-star, the five-star, and then God. Well, maybe the president's in there somewhere, but 
You know how that works? Right. So if you don't have authority, if the lieutenant tells the, who's above the lieutenant in the army? Major? Captain? I don't know. Everybody's over him. Yeah. If he tells whoever's over him, hey, I'm not doing that, man. No way. The, the army will understand. Oh, no. Oh, no, they won't. But I saw this in Vietnam, the t uh, troop cohesion. As the war's winding down and guys going on patrol. Okay, you take point. Not me, man. I'm not taking point. I'm, there, I'm not drawing fire. War's almost over. I saw the reels, the videos. Did you? That's to break down the cohesion of the unit. And so everybody drills us into you. It's important to be in subjection to the authorities. Why? Submission breeds peace. Subversion breeds chaos. Chaos. Why should I do this? Well, notice what Paul says in the next clause. For there is no authority except it came from where? God. And those which ex exist, well, they are established by God. So if you live in a totalitarian country, where was the derived authority from? God. It's just perverted by, it's perverted by sinful mankind. Because you remember the first governmental structure, right? Man and wife in a garden, perfect environment, eat of any tree you want to. God, the king, says, I'm going to give you just one law to obey. Pretty simple. That tree, don't eat. What'd they do? Well, they did what subversives do. Throw it off. Throw off his power. He's so puritanical, etc. Based on the devil's suggestion. So uh, God's going to say from the very beginning through Paul's pen, all authority comes from God. So if you're on a football team and you don't like your line coach, where did he get his authority from? God. I didn't like my wrestling coach. Why? He was like all state Wyoming in college. And back in the 70s, your, your, your coach could hit you. <laughs> Do you remember those days? Now there would be an ACLU attorney there. Sue him. I mean, back then it's like, you're toast. I mean, it, it, uh, whatever. Yeah, he, was, he always intimidated me. Uh, but, but I was under his authority. So I couldn't tell the coach, I'm not doing those sit-throughs. Well, he owned your soul at that point. So submission breeds peace. Subversion breeds problems. And, and why should we do this? Be, well, because everything that is established, that's authority structure, is from God himself. It may be perverted at some level, but it's from God. Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. Daniel, who's uh, taken as a teenager by the Babylonians in, uh, in their first wave of uh, attacks against Israel, which is, I think it was 605 B.C., uh, he's part of the intelligentsia, the academic nature of the young people, so that Babylonians take them to Babylon. Uh, eventually, uh, he moves up through the empire, uh, as we know the story, and he gets connected with a Babylonian king who's the epitome of evil. Uh, and when he runs into this king, uh, in chapter 2, verse 37, he says this to the king. And one of his visions about his empire. He says, you, O king, you are the king of kings. Notice what he says. To whom the God of heaven has given the right to have this kingdom. Uh, you have this power, this strength, this glory, and it's from God. And whenever the sons of men dwell, wherever they are, the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, he, God, has given them to you into your hand. He's caused you to rule over them all. What did the king think? I'm a politician this is all came about by my political intrigue and power. I'm so clever. Oh, uh, no. Daniel reminds him as a young man, remember, you only are the king of this godless empire because God, the true God, lets you do it. Who made Obama president? I mean, what, I mean, think politically, what happened? We all voted. He got the most vote, right? Well, I have to get real in this sermon. You trust, trust me? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get real. So who made it? Well, we voted on him, but really, who put him in office? God. Because it says all powers are established by God. Who made Trump president? God did. I mean, Americans got together, duly elected president. We voted on him. God put him there. Um, interesting. Who made uh, John F. Kennedy president when I was a little kid? God. How about Lyndon Johnson after Kennedy was shot? God. Uh, followed by Nixon. Well, God. Followed by Ford. God. Followed by Carter. Followed by Reagan, 1980. Followed by Clinton. Then George Bush, George Bush, George Bush, George Bush. They kept, ah, it's unbelievable. It's like, wow, flashbacks. But anyway, moving on, it's too convicting. Um, so they're, they're all put there because they're, they're a power that's established by God. doesn't mean that it's perfect power, but the derived power comes from, from God. There's no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. So God, what I think the politicians forget, especially in our culture, is that God put them in power. God put him in power, which means they're responsible to him. They will give account to him one day. Uh, it says so in Psalm 66, verse 7. He ruleth uh, by his power, speaking of God, forever. His eyes, God's eyes, behold the nations. And then there's a warning. Let not the rebellious, speaking of the politicians, exalt themselves. Don't exalt yourselves. What do politicians do today? Oh, it's all about themselves. It's all pride. And so the first thing we need to understand when we look at Paul's uh, statement here is when we look at political power, be, be what it may, all of it, wherever we live, ultimately is placed there by God for his purposes that are beyond our pay grade. You understand this? That's what a mature Christian understands. But that leads to point number two. Uh, a, a, a great citizen, a godly citizen, understands that he does not live for what I would call is the resistance movement. That's what Paul says in verse 2. He says, therefore, so it's, a, it's like an attorney arguing his case. Based on the premise of the first two things I said, let me draw a conclusion. Therefore, in light of this, that God has established authority, what's the conclusion? Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have, have opposed will receive condemnation upon yourselves. So he said, if you want to live in a state of total resistance to the said governmental authority. You're resisting against who God providentially put there. So to oppose them is to oppose God. Interesting. Antitasso is the word in Greek uh, to oppose. Uh, it is a military term denoting two opposing military units that are in a field of battle lined up against each other to attack each other. That's antitasso. He says, if you live, and it's a present tense verb, if this is your lifestyle to always live for the resistance against said authority, it's not going to bode well for you because you're going to answer to God for that. Again, I, th I think our culture has forgotten that. Now, we'll get into whether we should resist or not in a minute, but that's the premise. If you're, there's a tension. If I resist, I better be very careful about why I resist. And we'll get into that. But by and large, Paul is saying you should be known as a person who doesn't resist. Uh, you've seen these particular pictures, I'm sure. They're all over the place uh, of, the, of the hand. A lot of millennials and Generation Z thinks this is brand new. It's like tie-dye. It's like, well, check out my shirt, man. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, I'm looking at it going, because I had my grandkids here the other day, and they were showing me their tie-dye shirts as if it's brand new. And I'm like, flashback to 65. You know, everybody had those things. But anyway, and the same thing with the resist movement. I've seen this hand since the 60s. Have you? Anybody my age? Three people. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Or you don't even know where you are. You don't know who I am or, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, 
So this rise and resist. Now they have a website. Back then they didn't have a website. But that resistance movement was around when I was a kid. How do I know that? Well, this fist was everywhere. It's nothing new. This is like the devil. Remember? Hath God said? There's this rule and regulation? Eh, not defy that. No repercussions. Uh, when my dad was, a, uh, I mean, his whole career, was, he was at U.S. Customs, and then he eventually became, I guess you would say he was an ICE, ICE director, was what my father did. I was raised in that kind of world. DEA at my house, FBI at the door. It's the world I lived in. I understood law and authority at my house. My dad, uh, back in the days, in the 60s, 60s were awesome time to live, were they not? Because back then, when, when a federal agent, like, would uh, seize a vehicle from a, a, a drug dude, uh, like what was in the car, he could take home. <laughs> Do you remember these days? I'm alone. You're dialing 1-800, you know, law enforcement right now. No, my dad's with God right now. But back then, that's what happened. So if he sees the car full of cocaine, uh, they had a fishing pole, he'd bring me a fishing pole. I got all kinds of fishing poles. I had so many, I could hand them to friends. I'm like, where do you get these? Out of drug vehicles, you know? Um, I got all kinds of stuff out of cars. One day, my dad uh, brought me a book. When I was a teenager, he goes, hey, got this out of a car uh, from this, this guy I arrested today. You need to read this book. <laughs> Got to love my dad. Uh, on the front of the book was this fist, the red fist. The red fist. I'm going, oh, I was probably 16 at the time. Uh, it was a red fist. And, and, I'm, and he goes, son, you need to pay attention to what this book's about. It's written by a bunch of radical hippies. Remember hippies? <laughs> Beatniks, hip, hippies, the people with long hair. Yeah. He's, the book was about how to overthrow the United States government. It was a strategy. This guy was part of that unit. This was a plan. It's been around for a long time. Overthrow the United States government. What does Paul say? You should not be part of the resistance movement um, because that is t when you're doing that, you're resisting God himself. So let's think about it pragmatically. Hopefully this won't make you uncomfortable. But when Obama became the president, should I resist him if I didn't vote for him? No. Why? I respect who he is. If I didn't vote for Trump, should I resist Trump? No. Why? Because God put in there. Now, it doesn't mean we can't resist ever. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I must respect the office, right? Um, so when uh, Obama became the president, uh, when the head of the FBI at the White House was a prisoner here. So he invited Liz and I to come down one night and take a private tour. Are you going to say no? Not I. Uh, and so, you know, so we went down there. It was beautiful. The, the West Wing has the best carpet of any carpet anywhere. You walk in, it's like you're walking on, I don't know, like clouds. It's awesome. So we were walking through, it was awesome. It was like in June. It was hot outside. It was beautiful inside. Said hi to the, when you go through the door between the Eisenhower Center and the West Wing, you see the, you know, the Secret Service agent there, talked to him, met him. We we're kind of cruising around. There's no one there. It's totally cool. And we go through the final leaded door to walk up the staircase to the Oval Office and got to see in for the first time. It's awesome. There's no one here. Can I go in? Nope. <laughs> There's no one here. Nope. You know, okay, great. Uh, and there was an officer standing there too to help me understand, nope. Um, so, but, uh, so Liz and I, you know, we're standing there, we're looking out the window, you know, the Oval Office, and you see through the window in the Rose Garden, and you see the president's dog. What was that dog's name? Was it Bo? It's a trivia thing, whatever. We see his dog running around in the, in the Rose Garden. So Liz is like, oh, there's a president's dog. Yeah, you know, she wants to see the dog. And uh, so I'm thinking, okay, cool. So we walk down the hallway. There's another guard standing there before you go out the door to go into the Rose Garden. So we're walking down that little hallway there to, you know, hang a right. And uh, Obama and Michelle and the girls were going out with their dog to have a glass of tea. Could I talk to him? No, that was my question to this guy, the FBI. 
Can I talk to him? I don't think so. Well, he's right there. I mean, we're feet away. I mean, can I just hang the corner and go, hey, can I give him the Marty Baker grip? <laughs> you <know? laughs> and you all complain, I'm left-handed. If that means anything to you, you're shaking my weekend. But anyway, I just wanted to greet the president. <clears throat> you know, let's have a conversation. Let's talk. Uh, they, they, they enlightened me quickly. Uh, thou shalt not hang a right-hand turn into the Rose Garden. So I, so I didn't. But I, but I respected the man. I respect the, the current president. Does that mean that I agree with everything that they do? No, no. But who put him there? God, God. So you must take re resistance with, uh, with uh, well, with, with st it's stringent thinking. I think uh, that a lot of the resistance that's being done today uh, does not match biblical criteria for resistance. Consider David, how he resisted King Saul. King Saul is, is hunting him. Because God says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you, Saul, and I'm going to give it to this harpist. Huh? Our equivalent is I'm going to give it to a guy who plays a Stratocaster. Huh? He doesn't know anything about politics. He's a shepherd. He's a harpist. Are you kidding me? Saul is not happy. So he's hunting David to kill him. He finally finds David runs into King Saul in a cave. Up a gorge in Engedi. I take all my tour groups there. We'll go there in February. You hike up the gorge to Engedi. There's a giant waterfall feeding into a massive cave. This is where the King Saul went in to relieve himself. And David's in the cave with his soldiers. Here's what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 24 about how David responded to a king who's trying to kill him. It says, he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now when David and his man were sitting in the recesses of the cave, the man of David, his soldier, said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it seems good to you. This is awesome. You can take out your enemy. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. How did he do that without him hearing it? Waterfall inside the cave, very noisy. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of, the, of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, far be it for me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord. He's speaking of the king. He says, this is the Lord's anointed, uh, Saul, uh, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. Translated, God put him in authority, not me. I hate the fact I even cut the hem of his garment. So when you think about David, David, he could have retaliated there for the man hunting him, but he so respected the office, he would not resist. So I would say use David as a kind of a guideline and then pay attention to these four concepts of when you should resist. They're not in the biblical text. So this is extra. Number one, resist when the government asks you, commands you to disobey known biblical teaching. I mean, think of uh, Jay, uh, Peter, uh, of, uh, the, 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 the Peter and John, uh, they're up preaching the word of God, and they are told in uh, John chapter 4 uh, by the Sanhedrin, the political leaders, not to preach the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus anymore. What did they say? Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they told the political leaders, we must obey God rather than men. When it comes down to truth, God's truth, and what you think is truth, we, we can't acquiesce. And they did not. If the government asks you to do something that is contrary to the word of God, what do you do? You resist. Number two, if Christians uh, are called to resist, it's when they are asked to do something immoral or criminal. If they ask me to do something immoral or criminal, I can't do that. And it doesn't just mean the government. It's any, any structure of authority over you. So if your boss is asking you to cook the books so he doesn't have to pay as much in tax, what should you do? I, I resist. Um, is, is someone asking you to uh, falsify information for whatever purposes? 
You're, you resist. I, I can't do that. Why? Well, because well, I am for truth. I'm not for lying, etc. Is someone asking you to perjure yourself for the sake of the company, for the unit, for the water? You don't do it. Before I came here, uh, I taught at the largest uh, uh, Russian church in, in California. And uh, I taught their version of West Point grads. So there's a whole bunch of big, giant Russian soldiers who did not speak English. Talk about an interesting study of the Old Testament for three hours. And I had the pastor, 80-year-old Theodore Karpiak was my translator. I learned a lot from those Russian soldiers, those Christians. One day they told me this story. And my point's going to be, if I'm asked to do something criminal, I will not do it. If I'm a soldier, I won't do something criminal. Uh, they told me that uh, where they, when they were fighting, these are soldiers that fought in uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan long before we got there. And they told me that one day their unit kept getting picked off in the mountains by the Mujahideen snipers. And so they, uh, they took their unit, the commander took them to the local village, lined up the old men and women and put these guys with AK-47s to shoot them all, to teach the Mujahideen not to shoot a Russian soldier. I said, what happened? And Nikolai, what happened? He said, well, all the soldiers lined up in their uniforms, grabbed their rifles, got at attention, ready to shoot. The command game to shoot. No rifle was fired. I said, why didn't they shoot? Because every young man standing there that day was a Christian. I said, then what happened? They made all the women, women and children step to the side. They lined up those soldiers and shot them point blank. I was like, that's devotion to Christ. Is it not? Shocking. Those young men walked into glory and God's face shined on them. Why? Because they resisted for the right reasons, right? So there is time when you could resist. Third, believers should resist uh, when it goes against your conscience. Because I learned in my class teaching those Russians, I had everybody from Russia in there. I had Latvians, Estonians, I had them all in there. And I found out quickly because they told me as they would stand up and speak in Russian. I always thought it was an argument when they were talking to me. <laughs> because they're yelling at me, you know, like they're, they're, no, they're saying you blessed them. I'm like, whoa. Um, they, they would let me know, I am a pacifist. So I asked this one group of them, so if somebody broke into your home, was going to attack your family, what would you do if, if they're coming in to attack your wife and children? I would do nothing. I'm a pacifist. And then they would say, what would you do? Well, I, I, would, I would defend my family because God is for the defense of, of the innocent. I would defend them by whatever mean, means possible. So we had some interesting discussions uh, through a translator. Try to debate through a Russian translator. Their conscience said, I can't do that. My conscience said, I can do that to protect life. But we agreed as brothers and sisters of Christ to accept each other. But when it comes down to your conscience, you must ask yourself, I, for conscience sakes, can I, can I do this or not do this? And you know the difference. Remember Jiminy Cricket? <laughs> yeah. Conscience, conscience of what? Be your guide. That's the Holy Spirit. He will teach you. And then lastly, uh, there's a biblical precedent for believers opposing tyrannical governments. That, this is true. Uh, when the midwives were told by Pharaoh, you see a little baby boy, do what? Kill him. Kill him. What those godly women do? We're not going to kill a child. No way. And so they hid those ch children. And from those children came Moses, Moshe, which means to be drawn from water. They, you know, they saved his life. He became their deliverer. So that was, a, that was a pushing back against the tyrannical form of, of Egyptian government. Uh, when God raised up judges in the period of the judges, uh, many of them, like Samson, were raised up by God himself to overthrow tyrannical governments. That's what, that's what they did. When you read the book of Revelation, chapter 13 and 14, and you study the, the life of the Antichrist when he arrives on the planet, the ultimate satanic statist is what he is. He hates Christianity. You will have to have his mark on you so you can buy, sell, or trade. It's, read Revelation 13, 14. It says the Christians will not take his mark. Why? It's the mark of the devil himself. 
So it means they can't, they can't go shop in a Safeway. They can't get a paycheck, etc. They're not gonna, they're gonna have a hard time living. But they resist the tyrannical form of government, which leads to the premise that there are times when, when a believer can resist, but it's very limited. And again, I say, I think much of the resistance today is not based upon what God says you should do as resistance. I submit to you a man I think that did it right when it came down to being a great citizen in a very complex culture. His name was uh, Bishop Martin Niemöller. When he was a young man at 18, he thought Germany was anointed to be the light of the world to the, to the nations as a Christian. He joined the Imperial Navy. Uh, at 18, he eventually commanded a U-boat in World War I. After uh, World War I, he became a, a bishop over the church. Uh, within six months in World War, before World War II started, he saw his nation taken over by a crazy man, Hitler. Took six months. The guy respected no law and order and created his own law and order, and he wanted to totally rule over the church. Standing in his way was Martin Niemöller, who said, I will resist you because you're evil. And so he resisted. And January the 25th, 1934, Bishop Niemöller with some other pastors was escorted by SS officers into the Reich Chancellery to meet Hitler. While they were standing there with Hitler, another man walked in who was not happy. His name, Hermann Goering, who came in to Hitler and falsely told him that these pastors here are trying to subvert you as a political leader. They must be dealt with accordingly. It was a lie. July 1st, 1937, while he was at home, three years later, resting, doorbell rang. This little boy was playing by the front door. The bishop grabbed his robe, ran downstairs. Uh, there was two SS officers at the door and a black van. They said, uh, we need to, you need to come with us. Uh, we need to talk with you. He left. He never came home. July 1st, 1937. That's when that happened. March 2nd, 1938. He sat in solitary confinement all that time. Uh, they eventually uh, had his trial. Uh, they brought him up on trumped-up charges, and we would classify them as hate speech laws today. What was he guilty of? I'll read it, what they said about him. He's guilty of malicious and provocative criticism of the Minister of Propaganda and public enlightenment, Dr. Goebbels. Uh, same against the Minister of Education, Dr. Roost, and the same against the Minister of Justice, Dr. Grutner, of a kind calculated to undermine the confidence of the people in their political leaders, i.e. Hitler. What happened? Well, the judge said uh, to, the, to the bishop, I think you've been honorable and a good man in your response to the government, so I fine you 2,000 Deutschmarks and seven months in prison. With that, he turned to his wife in courtroom and said, honey, I'll be home soon. We can go on a picnic. Hitler found out that they didn't deal with him effectively. And so he said, I'm, you make him my prisoner. He then uh, was incarcerated uh, by Hitler in uh, Zachenshausen in Dachau. From 1938 to 1945, he put him in solitary confinement, confinement for the rest of the war. Why was he in there? Because he's a godly man who was a great citizen who loved his country, but said at one point, but in this situation, I have to resist. He became a great model, to, I think, to all Christians, you know, how to be a citizen in a country. What do we need in our country? I think we need m more Martin Niemöllers who are willing to be courageous when times are godless uh, and who are willing to stand up for that which is right. But again, do it with great care because God has given great, clear understanding in the first two verses how we are to behave towards said government. Should we as Christians begin to do these things Paul speaks about, I think we could take our culture and begin to turn it back those things which will bring a smile to God's face and bring peace to a nation. Let's pray. God, thank you.
Uh, so many deep things to talk about leads to many, many questions. Uh, but we thank you for just the Spirit's ability to teach us in a pragmatic way, in a, in a very uh, personal area of our lives where we're, there's probably much for us to learn if we want to line our lives up with what you think. And how you think is so different sometimes with how we think. Help us to grow up and step up to the plate and be the kind of saints that you want us to be in our culture. And, uh, and we pray for our nation, for our leaders. Bless them with wisdom, understanding. Uh, give all of them, regardless of political party, uh, great wisdom from on high to lead our great nation. Uh, and may we be the kind of uh, citizens can, can truly uh, step forward and say we're honoring them as we should in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.